Reacting to the world's best science, the Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Diana O'Carroll. And we begin with a look at some of this week's top science stories. Ooh, what a nice bed. Look, look at the uh, bed. That's a recording made recently during a piece of research by Rochester University scientist Richard Aslin and his colleagues who think they've stumbled upon an important trick used by toddlers' brains to help them to learn new words. It's based on something called disfluency. In other words, when we say er or um in a sentence. This tends to happen when we're about to say a word which is used less often or could be unfamiliar to the person that we're conversing with. And at the same time, speakers usually change the word the into the. So, for instance, they'll say, I'm going to the uh, supermarket rather than I'm going to the supermarket. Toddlers, it turns out, are very sensitive to these speech patterns and they can use them to pick up new words. We presented to babies, side by side on a computer screen, photographs of two different objects. One of the objects was well known by the infant. So, for example, a photograph of a banana. Next to the picture of the banana might be a picture of something like a wrench, an object that children don't have any experience with and they haven't yet learned the name of that object. And so what would happen then if the voice that is speaking about those objects says, oh, look, look at the wrench. What we know is that when infants hear a word and they see an object that is an unfamiliar picture, they immediately infer that it refers to this unknown object. What we wanted to know is what would happen if the voice that was speaking about these two objects said something like, oh, look, look at the um, wrench. Now, we know when you say the word wrench that they're going to look at the picture of the wrench. What we wanted to know is where do they look when they hear the, the, uh, the disfluency? If they can use the disfluency to make a prediction about what the next sound that is going to be coming in that sentence then they're going to predict that it's going to be an unusual sound. And therefore, they should look at the object that is the unfamiliar or novel object. And that's exactly what we found. During that disfluency, before the word has actually been spoken, they are looking at the novel object. And in fact, when the um or er was included in the instructions, the children spent 70% of their time looking at the unfamiliar object, compared with about 50% when the instruction didn't contain any of those hesitations. But what does this actually mean in terms of a child's learning? You are building up an expectation that something important is about to come next, which, in the normal course of events, the parent would, of course, eventually retrieve from their memory the the word that they're trying to, to say, and therefore that word is being highlighted for the child. So not only are they getting a prediction as to an important piece of information is coming next, but then it's priming them to pay particular attention to that information because it's going to be new. It's going to be useful for them in terms of learning the meaning of that particular word. So is there a message in there for parents and teachers and maybe even radio presenters? Normally you would think that we should speak without disfluencies because it adds uncertainty to the input that the child is receiving. 
But in fact, what we're showing here is that in this early phase of language development, when you're learning many, many new words, it can actually have a benefit. Now, we're not suggesting that parents should increase their disfluencies, but just the natural process of speaking has disfluencies in it, and parents shouldn't be worried about that fact, because in this particular case, it's actually beneficial. Richard Aslin from Rochester University, and he published that work this week in the journal Developmental Science. And so, Diana, now you can talk and say Amanar as much as you like without worrying. You're actually helping people understand. Yeah, I'll try and avoid too many disfluencies, but we'll see. Anyway, this week researchers have found evidence to suggest that life evolved on land much earlier than previously thought. These fossils come from a key point in evolution where tiny, simple bacterial or prokaryote cells developed features resembling larger, more complex eukaryotic cells, which would make photosynthesis and sexual reproduction possible. So, according to the paper, which is published in Nature, microfossils have already been found that demonstrate life existed in the sea over three billion years ago. But very little is known about early signs of life on land. So Paul Struther of Boston College and colleagues looked at microfossils found in billion-year-old rocks in northwest Scotland's Loch Troridon. These life forms they looked at were eukaryotes, organisms whose cells contained complex structures inside cell walls, and they measured up to a gargantuan one millimetre long. And the authors say that because of the presence of structures like a nucleus, chloroplasts and mitochondria, these simple eukaryotes must have lived in fresh water and were exposed to the open air because they have the parts necessary to perform photosynthesis. And the authors argue that it also supports the idea that prokaryotes, so cyanobacteria, evolved first in freshwater habitats and later migrated into the sea. And early cyanobacteria are thought to be the cells which ultimately became chloroplasts in plant cells, or in this case, these early eukaryotes, which are thought to be a precursor to algae. And the authors add that what it could mean is that freshwater habitats are better at encouraging eukaryotic evolution than the sea. Which is very interesting because also we know that the invasion of the land by plants happened about 450 million years ago and these cyanobacteria had the ability to photosynthesise, capture energy from the sun, so the fact they're there first does kind of fit, doesn't it? Yeah, and it kind of reverses the, um, the, the general consensus that has been held for a long time is that um, they came from the sea, but it would make much more sense given this new evidence that they came from fresh water on land. Thank you, Diana. We're talking of things that happened a long while ago. Also this week, how our early human ancestors talked their way out of Africa. There's a study marrying up the diversity of the sounds that are used in languages around the world with what genetics tells us about how people migrated out of Africa and across the globe. And it shows, this study, that it was probably the art of conversation that got people moving. Quentin Atkinson, the author of this new study, works at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. Ever since Charles Darwin, it's been recognised that the evolution of languages parallels, in many ways, the evolution of species. So you get this process of descent with modification, like you get genetic mutations arising, you get what linguists call innovations in languages. And so after a period of time when two populations have been separated, they can no longer understand one another and you get new languages forming, just like you get new species forming when they can no longer breed with one another. So it was with that background, I started looking at global patterns of phoneme diversity, phonemes of sounds in languages that are used to differentiate words with different meanings. So cat has a different meaning to bat because there's a different phoneme at the front of it. And 
one of the key pieces of evidence supporting an African origin for our genetic ancestry is that genetic diversity is highest in Africa and it decreases with distance from Africa. So you wonder whether the same thing would apply to language? That's right. That pattern fits with an idea called the serial founder effect. We expect an ancestral population in the homeland to have been there for quite a while and generated a lot of genetic diversity. And during an expansion, small groups will break off from that ancestral population and carry a subset of the diversity with them. And then as the expansion continues, small groups will break off from those groups and carry a further subset of diversity. So the further out you go from the origin, the less diversity you see. How do you counteract the effect, though, of population size? Because obviously with a small population, you have a small gene pool. You're also going to get a, a small phoneme pool, small number of ranges of different word sounds. That could be an effect of a bottleneck in a population. It could also be just the fact that a population happens to be small anyway. So how do you get around that? So part of the motivation for looking at a serial founder effect in phonemes was that population size has been shown to be correlated with the number of sounds that a language uses. So languages with more speakers use more sounds. So that fits with this idea of a founder effect. So I was looking for global decrease in the number of phonemes used around the world from some origin point. And you're right that one of the things you need to consider if you're looking at that is that this is not just a result of differences in modern population sizes, so that if some parts of the world happen to have, on average, smaller populations, maybe any global patterns we see is just a direct result of that. So one of the things I did was control for modern population size and look to see whether we still find a, a global decrease in phoneme diversity with distance from an origin. The origin turned out to be Africa. How many different languages did you consider around the world? In total, uh, 504 languages. So they're part of a data set called the World Atlas of Language Structures. Presumably that you've got the whole world represented in terms of on a map That's right. of where people went, mm -hmm. we think, in evolutionary time, and you've got the languages from those sorts of territories. And when you marry the two together, mm -hmm. do they agree? Yeah, the, the pattern that we see in the phoneme diversity, the number of phonemes, matches quite nicely with the pattern we see in genetic diversity. So just like the genetic diversity points to an African origin, so too it seems does the phoneme diversity. So this is a sort of another strand of evidence that supports the genetic diversity. People have also done this uh, with Helicobacter pylori, haven't they? People in Cambridge have done that, actually. And mm -hmm. also the facial phenotypic appearances. So this is another strand of mm -hmm. evidence. But does it actually show anything that those other investigations didn't? Or does it fill any gaps that they were incapable of, of addressing? I really think it does, because this is not some genetically inherited thing we're tracking. This is language. It's culturally inherited to the extent that our cultural ancestry, like our genetic ancestry, can be traced all the way back to Africa, which I think is quite remarkable. And that means that just as we're one big genetic family, we're also one big cultural family. But an even more fundamental question must be then, are you suggesting that the thing which catalyzed the out-of-Africa migration 
the thing that led to humans taking over the whole world was that we actually got modern language because if the root of all languages is Africa and then they slowly diversify from there, that would suggest that people had to have that core language function first before they went anywhere. That's right. It looks like from these results I've presented that humans carried with them in their toolkit from Africa language and all the advantages that confers in terms of cooperation and coordination. And I think language therefore could have been key in giving us the competitive advantage that we obviously had over a lot of the other hominid species around, which we ultimately obliterated. Quentin Atkinson. He's based at the University of Auckland in New Zealand and he published the work you've just been hearing about this week in the journal Science. Diana. Also, a team working in the USA and Holland have this week come one step closer to working out how a riderless bicycle remains upright. So as you know, this only happens when the bike is moving, so there must be some interesting mechanical forces at work keeping it from toppling over. So what happens when the bike coasts is that each time it starts to fall to one side, the front wheel will steer into the fall and so correct it, making the bike upright again. So for some time, the conventional wisdom has been that two principal forces cause this corrective steering to occur. The first of these is a sort of precession, otherwise known as gyroscopic torque. This is when something spinning in a particular direction provides a force that acts on the axis of the spin. So, for example, if you have one of those spinning tops where you pull a piece of string to make it spin, the spinning motion keeps it upright as gyroscopic forces pull on the axis to create a sort of self-correcting balance. So that's what keeps upright and when the top's not spinning it simply topples over on one side and for a long time it's been thought that the same effect happens on the bicycle wheel. Now the second effect is the caster effect and you see this on a shopping trolley uh, where when you steer it around corners the wheels appear to get dragged around behind the direction you're steering it in and this is because they're set on posts which are, if viewed from the side, in front of the position where the wheel meets the ground. And the same thing is effectively true of a bike because the place where the wheel meets the ground is actually slightly behind the steering axis. So publishing in Science, this new team built a bike that counteracted these two effects to see if it would still stay upright when How moving. How did they get around the gyroscope effect okay, with so, the wheel going around? Yeah, so, uh, so what they did is they constructed a frame and it had wheels that were sat above the wheels on the ground and they spun in exactly the opposite direction at the same speed. And so that would counteract that gyroscopic Oh, two wheels, effect. one above the other, yeah. one spinning one way, one the, the other, other therefore you completely counteract any exactly. gyroscope effect. Yeah. And what happened? Oh well, they had they still had another thing to deal with as well because uh, there was this other caster effect. Um, so they had to move uh, the point where the the wheel met the floor relative to the steering axis, so that it was directly above it. So you didn't have this dragging kind of trail effect that you get on a shopping trolley. Um, but what they did, um, what they found was that when they let this funny-looking bike roll off on its own, it stayed perfectly upright, no problem. So those two claims of why a bike stays upright when it's moving are wrong, right. effectively, or, or they, yeah. they make a minimal contribution. Exactly. So, so why is the bike staying upright? Um, well, they've, they've had, got a few other ideas, and they think it's probably something to do with mass distribution, but uh, the sort of point about this is that um, we don't really fully understand the mechanics of what keeps a bike upright, so potentially you could improve existing bikes' designs and, and make them absolutely fantastic and self-writing. And maybe even make the ideal circus bike, which is almost impossible, if not impossible, to ride by overcoming, if you can find out what the thing is that keeps it upright, overcoming that so it is impossible to ride. Yeah, maybe that's just due to big shoes, though, you never know. 
maybe. Well, to finish us off this week, the subject of schizophrenia, um, because a paper published in the journal Nature this week has made a big step forward in our understanding, potentially, of this disease, which affects about 1% of the population, and about 85% of cases have family members who are also affected, so it's strongly genetically influenced. But other than that, it's very hard to understand what sets apart the person with schizophrenia versus the person who doesn't have schizophrenia. So people who have this condition develop hallucinations, they see things or hear things that only they can experience, and then they develop delusions to explain why they're having these experiences. But other than that and those symptoms, we don't really know what's causing it. But what a group of scientists in California, this is Fred Gage and his colleagues at the Salk Institute, have done, is to use genetic techniques to take skin samples from four patients with schizophrenia They then genetically reprogram the skin cells called fibroblasts to make them into initially cells called iPS cells or induced pluripotent stem cells that they can then, with chemical treatments, turn back into brain cells in the dish. And by culturing these brain cells in the dish, they can then begin to understand and test them to see how they differ from control cells made from healthy people who don't have schizophrenia in order to see what the differences are. And what they have found so far is that the schizophrenic cells make far fewer connections to each other and to other cells. They put out far fewer outgrowths These are neurites, effectively little extensions of the cell surface that make these connections. And genetically, they're very different too. They did a genetic comparison of the levels of different genes, whether they're on or off, between the schizophrenic cells and the healthy patients. And what they find is 596 genes, which have different levels of gene activity between the two, and only 25% of those genes they found had been changed were known previously. So 75% of them were entirely new discoveries. And then they did a really interesting experiment because they started adding to these cells in the dish some of the drugs, antipsychotic medicines, that we give to patients who have schizophrenia to see what effect that would have on what the cells did in the dish. And they found, actually, that one of the drugs they tested, loxapine, could reset the activity of many of the genes which were different in the schizophrenic cells. And so one of the the lead authors, Kristen Brennand, uh, actually said about this paper, these drugs are doing a lot more than we thought they were doing. And for the first time, we now have a model system that allows us to study how antipsychotic drugs work in live, genetically identical neurons from patients with known clinical outcomes. And this means we can start correlating pharmacological, in other words, how drugs work, type effects, with the patient's symptoms. So in other words, in the future, you could use this technique and test how a drug is going to influence a patient even before you've given the patient the drug. And that's important because many of these drugs actually have quite serious side effects. Oh, it's absolutely incredible stuff. I, I can't wait to see what kind of drugs they're going to come up with with this new system. Um, and if you'd like to read up on anything we've covered this week, the references and transcripts for each of the news stories we've discussed are online, and that's at thenakedscientists.com forward slash news. The Naked Scientists News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.